Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, hello everyone. I am here with Aiden Dodson today. He is an Egyptologist and historian with a specialty in ancient Egyptian dynasties and tombs, among many other subjects. He was awarded his PhD by the University of Cambridge, and he is currently the Honorary Professor of Egyptology at the University of Bristol in the UK. He is the author of more than 20 books and 300 articles and reviews, and his latest book is called The First Pharaohs, Their Lives and Afterlives, which comes out in October of this year and is available for pre-order on Amazon right now. So, Professor Dodson, is there anything I'm leaving out or getting wrong there? It gives, it, it gives a reasonable flavor of what I, what I do, yes. Great, great. So my first question is, when it comes to this latest book, uh, The First Pharaohs, why did you decide to write a book about this subject? There's a couple of things. First of all, it's part of a series of books I've been writing over the past few years, which is the title source, subtitle sort of in, indicates their lives and afterlives. Both looks at them from the point of view of what we know about them when they were you know, ruling Egypt, but also looking at how they have been studied in more recent years, how we've actually rediscovered the existence of some of these individuals. And the reason why I went for these this particular group is that probably they were when I first got interested in Egyptology more decades ago than I sort of care to uh, care to mention. They were one of the first things that really interested me. Since then, my research foci have sort of rather drifted to much later periods, but they've, I've always had some affection for them. Um, and I was doing a book on general book on Egyptian royal tombs a few years ago, which again sort of rekindled my interest. Um, and also my publisher was interested in having a book on them as well. So it all these things all came together. Mm. So yeah, over over a couple of years I put this put put this thing together, which hopefully provides both, say, a very accessible and digestible um, account of the first probably three centuries of ancient Egyptian history, but also goes into quite a lot of detail about how we rediscovered these people even existed. Um, right. Something is worthwhile always bearing in mind that unlike some other ancient civilizations, pretty well ancient Egypt was totally forgotten as far as any kind of detailed history was concerned for mm. about for a couple of thousand years. So it's been a question of having to sort of literally unearth these people, not only sort of archaeologically, but also just starting to try and work out from written sources who that they very actually existed. And the people mm. in question, which is not surprising given they're sort of the earliest kings of Egypt, were amongst the last people from sort of history of ancient Egypt who were rediscovered both physically and even from the point of view of identifying being absolutely sure they existed outside of legend. Hmm. Well, I definitely want to get into some of the archaeological findings and sort of rediscovering uh, these pharaohs. And I'm wondering if before we do that, you can sort of set the scene a little bit. We haven't talked a lot about ancient Egypt on this podcast, mostly about ancient Greece 
And I don't, I know that myself and probably a lot of listeners may not be very familiar with sort of the time periods that we're talking about with the early pharaohs and what was happening in Egypt at that time. Can you just kind of set the stage a little bit for the time period we're talking about? Okay. Well, we're talking about a period leading up to 3000 BC and the centuries immediately following that, give or take a century, because this far back, the chronology remains a little bit a bit flaky. But in night, but 3000 3000 BC is a good figure to be to start the whole thing off with. Um, basically, in the previous number of centuries, Egypt had gradually been moving from simply being a bunch of isolated uh, communities, um, early agricultural communities, to forming a number of political blobs, if you want to call them that. And by the time we're getting to the period before, before 3000 BC, we seem to have a very significant um, Upper Egyptian kingdom in existence, Upper Egypt being the south of Egypt, probably stretching from sort of modern Massoud down to the uh, Aswan, that sort of that sort of area. And we have some reasonably good evidence for that being a proper kingdom. We haven't got texts text this early, but all the archaeological stuff suggests you've got a proper statified society uh, with kings and stuff like that. In the north, it's a little less clear. Later tradition implies there was a kingdom in the north as well, but we haven't got the archaeological data which confirms that. Mm. When you look at the material culture, there seems to be an increasing amount of standardization in the north, which might indicate some kind of political you know, um, blobbing up, but we can't be sure, but be sure about that. And then what happens around 3000 is the south takes over the north. Now, whether this was a military conquest, a gradual absorption, again, not quite clear. Hmm. Some um, epigraphic material from this period from the south implies some kind of, sort of formal takeover. But again, we can't be 100% sure about that. But so, but that is in that in big handling, we can be reasonably certain around 3000 Egypt goes from being what it had been a few generations earlier, a number of separate little entities through to being a united kingdom for the, for the first time in its history. Okay. And is, and this is where we see the first Pharaoh arrive during well, this time? In, in, Insofar as we can call them pharaohs, the point about the problem with the word pharaoh, which I which I actually had to address in my preface, <laughs> is that the word pharaoh comes from the from the Bible, and is only and it comes from an ancient Egyptian title Per-A'a, which is actually only used from about fifteen hundred BC on, which I owe one and a half thousand years later. So <laughs> you could argue that the term using the term pharaoh is an anachronism because nobody that early is being called a pharaoh. Mm. However, nowadays, pharaoh, I think, is now passed into the English language as simply being a term for an Egyptian king. Yes. And I'm using it really in that kind of format. It's also quite useful in that pharaoh is fairly sort of gender gender neutral. Mm. Um, and therefore, if we have actually got some female kings. You can't call them queens because their titles aren't aren't that um you can also use them use the term quite neatly for for female kings as well but anyway so 
in the sense that pharaoh is simply a term for a king of ancient Egypt, I think we can argue, we can say that when Egypt becomes a single thing, I think we can t- start talking about pharaohs. Mm. Although I'm sure there'll be some pedants out there who would query that. But from my point of view, I think, and I think most people's point of view, if you say pharaoh, they're not going to start worrying about when exactly in the history of Egypt it became a formal title. Mm. Mm. Well, can you elaborate a little bit on on that and sort of what a f- the evolution a little bit or how the early pharaohs were different or the the early kings were different than what we think of now in the i guess in the popular yeah mentality of a pharaoh i think in many ways they are they are a pharaoh because it's, it's in this early dynastic period that mm. the whole that the the things which sort of make up ancient egypt come together a lot of it's in quite sort of primitive form but the basics are there now the idea that the king is divine quite what that means of course is a matter of things vary over time is it actually a god on earth a son of a god or whatever but clearly there's a divine kingship there there's the idea that the king is there not only to govern the country but also sort of to keep it safe almost theologically and dynamically and when you look at the titulary of these kings, although the title, the actual names and titles they use aren't in the formal form, which happens a few centuries later, they're all there. And then the um, iconography of the king is already set. Um, amongst the earliest art we have is, a, is an image of the king smiting an enemy. And that's an icon which is still being used in Roman times. So 3000 years later, the idea of a king standing there holding an enemy by the hair and then about to whack his brains out with a um, with, with, with a mace is something there right at the outset. And we find the Emperor Nero and people like that still being shown the same way 3000 years later. Mm. So I think that most of the actual basics of Egyptian kingship are there. They're being established by these very, very first um, proto-pharaohs, if you want to call them that. And all that really happens later on is that those basic constitutional, theological, ideological strands become more formalised. But pretty well everything, even if you're sitting there looking at a Roman emperor pretending to be a pharaoh, you know, after the after the conquest of Augustus, you can still see an awful lot of how he is depicted, having himself depicted on temple walls and so on. You can trace all that right the way back to it was about 3000 when the country is first unified. So it's, it's remarkable when you look at Egypt, although, say, for the for the expert, you see innumerable changes as time goes by. So in big handfuls, the fact that the basic constitutional and sort of ideological setup doesn't change for three thousand years is pretty powerful. Mm. You know, given given the you know how long basic constitutional ideas tend to, to stay un, unchanged in you know, modern Western societies. Right. Well, in terms of the po- kind of the political system, was it essentially always? an absolute monarchy sort of thing. That's my impression, not knowing a whole lot, was that the pharaohs were absolute kind of godlike monarchs and there wasn't a 
Senate or of any other constitutional bodies. Now, the, the, the theory certainly seems to be pretty solid that mm. the pharaoh was it, was the fount of everything. Mm. Um, and beyond, below that, the bureaucracy very, seems very much to be focused on the king. Uh, the king is appointing all the main um, officials, um, so yeah, I don't think there's any, there's a, there's no, there's nothing there, there's nothing there which which suggests that there's any kind of diminution of the of the king's power, mm. at least in 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 theoretical terms anyway. And again, that follows right the way through Egyptian history. You've got that, and although there are always other power centres growing up, you know, temple the temples and things like that. There seems to be that throughout. It always seems clear that the king, at least theoretically, has got the final say. You know, mm. it may all depend on the individual monarch and everything else. But yeah, it is. It, it's a, it's an it's an absolute monarchy. Um, in insofar as that, that's how we understand how we understand that kind of term today. Mm. Mm. And I think, and again, I'm speaking here almost as a layperson uh, because we haven't dove much into ancient Egypt. But the things that come to mind when I think a lot of people think of ancient Egypt are the massive structures like the pyramids and also the elaborate tombs and things like that. So you talked about how this early era of pharaohs sort of laid a foundation for what came later. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect? Were they starting to build uh, important structures or large structures or tombs or anything like that during this era? They're certainly start, they're starting. Um, and in fact, you can trace the very earliest pyramids, as far as their designs concerned, to those to, mm. to, to what's happening here. They're certainly by no means anything like the size of the thing which appear later on. But they're quite sophisticated compared with what goes on went on previously. Um, the royal tombs, for example, take the form of cuttings in a desert gravel. Which are then um, lined with mud brick and occasionally paved with stone, and those are th those those cuttings are re reasonably sized. They would have been covered over probably with tumuli and so on. But also, rather more mo monumentally, these the actual tombs were accompanied a couple of kilometres away by a ceremonial enclosure um, made of mud brick because mud brick is really all they, they're really using, apart from a few other little bits of stone. And those ceremonial enclosures are pretty large. And there's one, um, no, there's, there's, there's one which survives today, which is still standing 10 metres high, these, these great walls around it. So, they're, so by, the, by the lights of their era, they're doing so. The trouble is that go, all we've really got monumentally for these people is their tombs, or, and, and tombs and, and things associated with their tombs. The settlement sites the temple areas are deeply buried long since over over over, over built by other things mm. so we know very little about sort of the what you might call the, the, the sort of state temples and so on a few traces have been found deep under the foundations of later things but so we can't be 100 percent clear but just looking at the scale of the sort of things which they're doing for their tombs it seems likely that they're already being quite um ambitious when it would be coming to, to building other stuff. Mm. And, and were the some of the religious ideas of ancient Egypt already coming through in, in the findings uh, at that time? 
It looks like it. The trouble is that this early on, that the, the although it, we, the Egypt is now literate, it's still almost it's in a sort of proto-literate kind of ma- manner. So the texts mm. we've got aren't particularly sort of deep and meaningful. On the other hand, though, we certainly have representations of deities who are still around three thousand years later on. So it looks very much as though yes, you've got. The, the, the basics of the religion are all there. Certainly some of the key gods. Um, for example, there's the um, Apis bull, who is a, an incarnation of the god Ptah, and we find him right at the very, very beginning of history, and he's still around in Roman times as well. So it looks as though, again, once again, the basic strands are all there, but it's not until a few centuries later on that we have sufficient surviving material to be able to be absolutely clear but there's no reason to suspect that they're not already there pretty well right at the outset well and i think that's a good sort of segue into the archaeological aspect of all of this uh in just rousing the description of your book it talked about how until relatively recently we didn't we didn't know much about these early pharaohs and it, it a lot of the knowledge had been lost or forgotten and I just want to put in perspective for listeners. So we're talking about 3000 BC, mm-hmm. even the earliest Greek history that we've gotten to the end of the Bronze Age um, was around 1100 BC in the kind of the collapse of of the Mycenaean era in Greece. So we're talking about up to 2000 years earlier than even the earliest Greek history that we've talked about with the Trojan, the you know the Trojan War, if there was a Trojan War, and that kind of thing. So it's quite. It's a also long... worth actually, as I pointed out to my students, for, for for Cleopatra, these pharaohs were more ancient than Cleopatra is for us. Mm. Mm. Yes, I've 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 heard that kind of thing before, and it's uh, Cleopatra who, correct me if I'm wrong, was was she the last? Yeah, Cleopatra the seventh. Yeah, when she 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 was she died in 30 BC. Okay, so she died in 30 BC. So, right. So we're closer to Cleopatra than she was to the era that you are talking about. Yeah. And yet she is operating as in in a kingship system, which effectively is the same kingship system which had been going on 3000. So if you imagine if we were trying to run the UK or the States or whatever, on whatever our political setup was 3000 years ago. Right. You know, that we'd be talking about Iron Age. We'd still be Iron Age chieftain, chiefdoms in, in, the, in the UK anyway. Yeah. So we're talking about vast expanses of time relative to kind of, I mean, even the United States is only a, a few hundred years yeah. old. We're talking about thousands of years of a civilization here. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how, how that happened, how there was a, a re- discovery of this early era of Egypt? Yeah, well, basically, Egypt in its in its own terms is a, is a complete mystery from really the end of paganism through to the early 19th century. Mm. Because with the end of paganism, the ancient Egyptian writing system really got forgotten. And for the next 2000 years, all we've really got are some of the things which some of the classical writers say about Egypt, a few mentions in the Bible. Um, there is a king list written in the in the third century BC in Greek, but that's really about it. So we've we've, we've got some names which are have been, but oh, those names 
and any of the events are all seen through the, the lens of late of, of Greek of, hell, of, hell, of Greek writers. Mm. So it's not until we get to the beginning of the 19th century that they start to be able to decipher hieroglyphs. Once again, it's possible to read the original Egyptian texts. But even when they do that, they're not particularly helpful from the point of view of getting back beyond about 2500 BC. Mm. Because while a reasonable amount of material was, it's, I with, was already identified by the early archaeologists, which goes back, say, about to about 2500 or so BC, there was nothing earlier than that. All they had got was some, you know, some names through, uh, through these Greek, this Greek king list. And then even when they actually found an original ancient Egyptian king list, which went back to the beginning, and it gave names which seemed to be in keeping with the ones on this Greek list, there was still a problem. There was no original material whatsoever. And it wasn't, and even in 18, around 1890, a leading Egyptologist was saying, as far as they were concerned, the earliest kings of Egypt prior to about 2500 BC were purely legendary. Mm. And there was no real way of knowing, there was no evidence to say that they really existed. They may simply have been mythical, you know, ancestral, ancestral kings, you know, as we've got in quite a few countries, you know, in, 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 in the UK and, and Great Britain in general, there are legendary kings going back, you know, into the midst of time, but they are clearly legends. And I think in, I think one of the um, original kings of England is supposed to be Brutus. So it all gets, you know, from the Trojan Wars. So anyway, anyway, that was up to 1890. It was all very, very, very um, flaky. There was one pyramid which seemed to be significantly earlier than the rest, but where that fitted in, nobody knew. And it was the mid-1890s before anybody really started to um, find real stuff from this era. And it was quite almost sort of by almost by luck that all of this happened roughly at the same sort of time. First of all, the existence of Egyptian prehistory was identified by discovering graves which were clearly from before any kind of pharaohs. Mm. And then a couple of excavations revealed tombs which actually came from this very, very early period. Um, a tomb was found at a place called Nagada, um, which had also been where they'd also found some prehistoric remains. And that appeared to be a royal tomb from the beginning of history. And also, um, a couple of years later, some excavations at Abydos began, and that was the crucial thing, because Abydos was where these earliest kings were buried, and their tombs were found. Um, first of all, by a French excavator called Amelineux, who made a bit of a hash of it, um, but, 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 but was good enough to recognise what he'd found. And then directly following on from him, right at the very end of the 19th century, uh, Flinders Petrie, the British um, Egyptologist, re-excavated. And, and from the remains which were found there, he was able to fill in the full succession of kings from the unification through the end of what we call the First Dynasty, because Egyptian history is divided into a series of dynasties, which are little by little by little, you know, royal, royal houses in European history, you know, the Habsburgs, the you know, Plantagenets, all that sort of thing. So we had, we, we got that. There was still a bit of a problem linking from about sort of 20, 
28 or 2700 BC to 2500. But they got that. And what was important was it was possible to verify that these people who were being found buried at Abydos were the same people who were in these king lists. So these weren't mm. le- these 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 weren't completely legendary kings. And then over the next sort of few decades, things have been filled in. The period following on from these Abydos tombs has been made clearer. Although it looks like it was a major civil war during that period, so it's still a bit a bit a bit um, a bit flaky. But we now actually have a reasonably solid succession going back from. Where we you know we where we were around 2500 originally, it's gradually moved back, and we can really write write Egyptian history in a reasonably confident manner from 3000 onwards. Mm. Wow! I want to remind listeners that we're talking to Aidan Dodson, who's the author of the first Pharaohs: Their Lives and Afterlives, which is coming out in October. Professor Dodson, uh, did anything surprise you about writing this book? You know. As you were as you were researching and putting this all together, obviously you're already a well-known and established Egyptologist. Did anything surprise you in the process? I think it, I think my most interesting I was finding was the historical historiography of it. This trying this looking at what people were thinking about during the early nineteenth century. It's mm. a, in fact, it's a, it's a strand of Egyptology I'm becoming increasingly interested in, particularly. With the, given that these this series of books I've been writing has sort of the final chapter is always about historiography of these things, and although sort of I thought I knew you know picked up a lot of it over the years, it's interesting just to see what little bits, what certain individual, certain people thought, um, how they sort of read data, um, and how much insight some of them had, and also how badly wrong some people were as well, and I think. Given where we sort of sit now in the 21st century, we see, you know, with, with, with what we seem to have a reasonably solid view of the ancient world, um, although admittedly there are sort of seismic changes every so often when a new discovery is made, which, well, okay, but that, those, tend to, those tend to be seismic on a little bit of it. You know, we've got the big picture remains reasonably solid. It's just little bits and pieces we're sort of mucking around with. But there in the 19th century, they're really start, they're absolute, starting from absolutely zero. It's very difficult to get your head back into how they must mm. have been. And some, you know, some of them came up with some absolutely ridiculous now, seem absolutely bonkers ideas but actually at the time with what they had in front of them you know all they got was say some was various sort of greek effectively legends a few damaged pieces of contemporary um, data and you had to try and make some kind of working hypothesis out of it and that's some that's something which i always try and emphasize to students also is that really ancient history is working hypotheses it's not like modern history where we can actually be certain certain people existed and certain events happened. Okay, we can argue about why they happened, but we are getting back to a point where the very existence of an individual is a question, even what gender some of them are, and all those kinds of things. And it's uh, when you when you when I, when you start going back to some of these old books from the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties. And you've got to try and sort of actually recognize the thought process of your, your, with this absolute lack of, you know, you're, you're building everything up from first principle. I think that's, I found that particularly fascinating. Mm. And it's not just even this, this far back. Um, I've just, I've got a book coming out um, next year on Tutankhamun. And one of the, a, a, um, a serious theory 
in the 1830s and 40s was he was actually the same person as Danaeus, who later founded Argos in Greece. Mm. It sounds completely barky, but in the context of what the data was. So that was bad enough for somebody who's sort of, you know, 1300 BC. When you're trying to work out what's going on 3000 BC. And of course, at that period, you've got people who are doubting that 3000 BC is possible owing to you know, um, creation, you know, right. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's it, it, the most fascinating I found was, was simply trying to get my head back into being a proto-Egyptologist in sort of the 1830s and 40s. It seems like there's a little bit of a parallel with some of what was happening with the discoveries in Greece in the 19th century, where a lot of stuff was essentially considered myth, purely mythological. But then you had Henrik uh, Schliemann and some others who started to discover stuff from the Bronze Age, like the site that many people believe was Troy. Uh, and it, all of a sudden, it sort of turned things on its head a little bit. Is it is it fair to say the 19th century was some kind of explosion in, or the, the beginning of modern archaeology? Oh, oh, very definitely, yeah. I think it was, the, I think there's a number of things. First of all, it was possible to actually access the countries which people were interested in, mm. because prior to the 19th century, it was, you know, Field work was, a, was was distinctly problematic on safety grounds and all sorts of other things. But I think there was also the sort of the um, academic mind was 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 um, maturing, so that you were no longer hidebound by your interpretation, say, of the Bible. You know, it, it was part because, and what you see quite interestingly as you move through the nineteenth century, is when you're taught when is this recognition that actually. The Bible, okay, it is, you know, it's, it is, it's better, it's better this only literature you've got from that era, effectively, but actually you can't take it as read. It seems to be very, and you start seeing people just saying, well, hang on, can we actually move away from the, from the biblical paradigm of pre-modern history, which had been there you know, throughout the you know, Middle Ages into the, and, on into, and on through into the Renaissance as well. So there's, there's some mindsets happening. So there's the ability to get at material, there's a mindset to allowing it. There's also the growth of universities and so on. So you've actually got a vehicle for people to actually be able to do this kind of thing. And you've got networks of study. You start getting um, international con conferences of people who are studying the ancient Near East, for example. So you're starting to get, so therefore we can start, start um, sparking off each other as well. Rather than simply the sort of the more you know, almost medieval model of the, uh, the the individual scholar doing their own thing, so I think that the nineteenth century, everything about it allowed all this to happen, and we have to recognise how much we sort of you know, so much of what we think we know now is basically generated then. But we mm. always have to have a slight. There's also a slight problem with that, is that some of the brilliant insights back then were now start, which had not then become facts, quote unquote, right, are now proving not to be. For example, in, in a completely late, much much later period, we've now realised that two kings had been put in, had been switched. Mm. in the historical order, which seems not very much, but the knock-on effects are quite spectacular. But it was just a case that in, um, in the 1820s, 
there was a question which way round do these these two people go because there was no obvious ob obvious evidence and they, they plumped for that way round and then only in the last sort of 10 15 years we've realized they were that way round so and i'm sure there are other things there which we 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 we've, we've thought we knew we've known for so right. long we think of as facts right when they probably aren't you have so to recheck everything really yeah and, and i think that's what has to be care no, that's, i guess one of the things we've got to be careful you know as researchers but also to try and get across to um the layman as well who often doesn't understand that say this stuff is just working hypothesis effectively and that it's possible that everything can be can be completely thrown up in the air by one new discovery or just simply rethinking something as i was saying with these with this with this switching of of kings mm. um and hence the reason why i sort of say to people well you don't you shouldn't really re be reading books of egyptian history which are more than about 10 years old mm. to ex with any expectation of it being something like right okay earlier stuff there's still lots of value in it but you have to get more and more critical the further and further back you get uh, and that's something that i think people find very very difficult to get their heads around certainly i find students having difficulty getting their heads around but why have i why have i marked them down for using a book from 1898 as their sole source <laughs> well uh, we have changed our thoughts i've got a few of these things and so right. that's a an issue Interesting. Wow. Um, I believe you're the first Egyptologist we've had on the show. And I'm curious what the current state of things are in Egyptology and in uh, archaeology in Egypt. Are, are there digs that are always going on? Is there, is, there more, is there more to discover in terms of major things that could be out there? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, COVID, you know, leaving, leaving COVID aside, mm, um, right. there is normally literally hundreds of excavations going on in Egypt at any one time. Some of them being conducted by the Egyptian um, Ministry of Antiquities themselves, others by foreign universities, museums, and so on. Mm. And yes, there is an awful, although we've, we've got an awful lot, there's still... We probably only scratch. We've only really scratched the surface, uh, and even sort of major sites which are which seem to have been being dug since uh, you know, the last two two centuries. There are still huge swathes of them untouched, because the problem is often these sites are so huge that actually it takes a lifetime to to work on them. The you know the the early Egyptologists and archaeologists would sometimes do a site in one season. And a season in Egypt terms is probably from October through to February, March. It gets a bit, a bit, a bit too hot otherwise to, uh, you know. To, whereas nowadays you've got, I've got colleagues who've been working at the same site for 20, 25, 30, 40 years. And they still have only done a tiny proportion of it. And it's certainly modern archeology, span of course, is much more um, time intensive that you know rather than clearing a whole uh, square mile in a in a season you'll possibly do about three 20 meter squares in that period as well mm. so because of that there is stuff going on and there's yet yeah, it's all sorts of places where people haven't really worked up until now um you know people have tended to focus on certain on certain areas and now people are then looking elsewhere also out in beyond the nile valley as well out in the deserts as well there's work going on so yeah there's a huge amount going on and every sea every year brings new information hmm. 
Some of it is just simply adding a bit more to what we already know. But in some cases, these things can be quite radical. Uh, discovering one new ins one inscription which changes, which fills in a gap, and therefore probably means all our suppositions about that historical gap have to be re re revisited because we've actually got some genuine some genuine data from it. So yeah, uh, you know, normally say during during the winter, Egypt is absolutely crawling with 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 field archaeology, and of course, and also back in the library and in the in the um, in the archives, people are working. I'm I'm basically an archives stroke library kind of um, Egyptologist rather than a hole digger. Mm. Um, but again, that's that's where quite a bit of stuff because it's so, there's you know, a lot of things which have never been published. One of the things with nowadays that effectively, unless you publish your results within a certain period, you won't get your, your digging license renewed. And you probably won't get your grant from your, you know, uh, your university or whatever if you don't. But in the old days, that probably wasn't so much the case. You know, digging is always much more fun than spending, than, than writing it all up. And the number of people I know who've never quite got round to writing it all up, they've gone under a bus, they've had a stroke, whatever. And it's so therefore a lot of people who are actually now going back through the archival material of unpublished sites to then try and work out what we, we should already have known, but never but never made it into print. Mm. Um, and, if, and then also a lot of more people before they start digging where they're at, from scratch are much more conscientious about going back and finding what's been done previously so they know what the questions are as well so uh, so yeah there's so so whether you're talking about you know in a um, sort of almost caricatured archaeology sitting down um a, a trench in the middle of nowhere versus or just sitting surrounded by piles of books and old and old papers it's you know it's, it's thriving mm. are there any particular mysteries that you have your eyes set on and that you're wondering, hmm, I wonder what they find there, or I, I wonder if something that you came across might still be out there to be discovered. There are various things. If we, if we, if we look at specifically, though, at the um, period of the book, which you know, the, the book we, we're talking about, there is this period, so the first, the base of the period which is covered by the book is what we call the first three dynasties. Mm. Um, that's how they number these numbered royal houses. The first dynasty is a cinch. We've got all the kings, we've got their tombs, you know, okay, be, be nice to have a little bit more data, but you know, we know what's going on. It, and then, then a couple of reigns on, it all gets very, very sticky. And actually remains pretty sticky for another couple of centuries. And it's trying to work out what's going in, on in those periods that we have issues. Because the second dynasty, there is evidence there was some kind of civil war going on mm. but what caused that civil war what is the you know what what actually did it mean it looked like it was some kind of northern rebellion against the south but who was like leading it we've got various royal names floating around some of which we can tie into things others not so there's a whole and we don't even know how long that hole is. Is it two decades, three decades, four decades? So that's that's really something which we need to try and fill in. And, no, and nothing really has actually been done. Well, nobody's found anything which is which is valid, which is relevant to that. So mm. there's that. And interestingly enough, after this civil war, we get a recovery and a reasonably well-known bit of time, including when they build the first pyramid, the step pyramid uh, of King Joseph. 
But then it all goes flaky again for another sort of century or so until we get to the fourth dynasty, which is where they build the Great Pyramid, the Great Sphinx and all that. And from that point onwards, it's all solid, all pretty well solid. So what's going on in the third dynasty? Why have we got so little data? Um, we're not so with those. We're not even sure how many kings there are because the, the different lists disagree. We can't identify all the royal tombs. There's one royal tomb which which something which might be a royal tomb which has never been properly excavated or even identified as a royal potential royal tomb, and has now got um, a motorcycle a motorbike motorbike shop. Um, housed right next to it and wow. so that's so there's lots of little things like that um which one needs to try and elucidate but whether or not we're we able to or not is another different mm. is another other matter we're just lucky that the site the early royal cemetery of Abydos, it's all there and well preserved and so on so that could be dealt with whether there's any kind of going back that far whether we've got the material, because part of the problem is some of this material is just so deeply buried. And in places like the Royal Capital City at Memphis, just outside Cairo, the relevant levels are deep under the modern water table. So then the evidence might be there or might have been there, but you probably can't, we can't, we can't get to it. Wow. So it's by no means a stretch to think that there's a possibility of incredible discoveries for many more decades or centuries. Absolutely. And the thing is, though, people often tend to think of incredible discoveries being sort of you know, lots of gold and stuff. Like that. <laughs> right. But actually, for, for, for most of us, what were the incredible discovery is actually finding some evidence for what's going on, say, during the Civil War or, or so right. on. So, yes. And it's always possible. You know, it, it's, it's amazing how much stuff does sort of these things pop up. Like a whole new royal cemetery from much later on, uh, was found only a couple of years ago in Abydos. Um, mm. So in an area people, they thought had excavated, but actually this hadn't dug deep enough in the sand. So um, there's, there's, there's loads of scope anyway. You mentioned the pyramids, and uh, I did a kind of a cursory Wikipedia lookup of the, the Great Pyramid before we talked, because I wanted to know, is this happening during the time period that, that you're writing about in this new book? Uh, in my mind, it, the pyramids of Giza, there are three great pyramids, but I guess there's one that's cons that's larger than the yeah. others. Well, well, yeah, the, 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 the pyramids of Giza are built directly after the period I'm dealing with. So my book covers dynasties one through to three. The fourth dynasty is where the where the where the great pyramid and so on are. are. So it's, it's 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 the point where where all the where that almost prototype period is over. And we're now into something much more solid. There's much more material surviving, but the yeah. So, so they they probably date so around 2500 or so BC mm -hmm. onwards. And yeah, there's there is there are three big pyramids at Giza, of which the biggest of them has always been called the Great Pyramid. Ah, wow. Um, it is marginally bigger than the second one, which is slightly smaller. But there is a but basically you've got a period at the beginning of the fourth dynasty, which is where the biggest pyramids are all built. It's quite interesting. You've, you've, you've gone through the early the early period, the first three dynasties, where things are, as I've said, as we've already discussed, are very much sort of uh, prototypes. They then build the prototype pyramid at the beginning of the third dynasty. It looks very, it, it's, a, it's a different shape from the ones later on. It's a stepped pyramid, and, there, and it actually incorporates various architectural features which go back, look back in time. But what it does there is, although it is, it's in many ways a stone 
representation of the sort of stuff which was being done early on in brick. So they've sort of got to that point. Then mm. there's this sort of this hole in history in the latter part of the Third Dynasty. Not quite sure what's going on. But then suddenly when that's over, bang, everything almost leaps into the air almost. A king called Snefru, who is the first king of the uh, Fourth Dynasty, he builds three pyramids during his lifetime for various reasons, which I probably don't want to go into today. Mm. And it's his son, Khufu, who builds the Great Pyramid, the biggest of them all. His son, um, Khafre, builds sort of the second biggest one. And in fact, all the, all the biggest pyramids of Egypt are all built within perhaps a century at the beginning of the Fourth Dynasty. And it almost seems that what the, what the kings are doing is basically saying, look, this is what we can now do. Hmm. That all, whatever's been going on in previous centuries, all the prototyping and things like that, and now the country has matured into the, the full fully fledged ancient egypt and not only are we building they're building gigantic pyramids we've now got huge cemeteries of the senior officials so in the early periods we've got a few names of senior officials but once you get into the fourth dynasty we can actually do genealogies of them we can give full lists of who was prime minister who was overseer of the treasury and all those kind of things so suddenly the amount of material vastly increases so whatever happened that is when egypt then becomes it matures in the fourth dynasty and then having sort of done these remarkable structures gigantic pyramids they then in the fifth dynasty which follows on from that things become more standardized pyramids become much smaller but they're accompanied by huge temples with with gorgeous decoration they they mm. change the focus of things mm. and that's more a period of consolidation and i suppose when you look at what's going on in the fifth dynasty that is really where everything by the by, by the end of the fifth dynasty ancient egypt as recognized for the next three thousand years is in place mm. they've sort of taken all of their all that sort of the experimental phases during the first dynasties the sort of the massive engineering overachievement if you like of the fourth dynasty and then it all then is settles down and really that's so in you know, as far as artistic styles uh, religious ideas all of them are then in place so and then that's, that runs on we've still got that right the way through in some ways up to the end of paganism hmm. Well, Professor, I want to be mindful of your time. Like I mentioned, uh, your book that's coming out in October, The First Pharaohs, Their Lives and Afterlives, is what we've been talking about. Is there, and it's available on Amazon for pre-order, like I said, is there anywhere else that you'd like to point people to follow your work or where people can follow you online? Well, there is a whole, there's a, there's a, this is the latest of a series of books in the same series. So mm. you might want, people may want to explore the previous ones, which are on Nefertiti, um, Ramesses III and Seti I. And I've got one coming out next year, or should do when I finish writing it anyway, on Tutankhamun to, as an unashamed cash-in, I suppose, for the centenary of the discovery of his tomb mm. in, in 1922. And I've got a couple more in the same series. So they're, they're probably not a bad start because they're both, they're, that this series is aimed to be accessible to the more general reader as well as the sort of the more, sort of the more archaeology fan. I've got a whole load of other books, which are, as you mentioned, I've got over 20 of them, which some of which are a little bit more, little bit more highbrow. 
Um, but these ones are probably worth a good, a good starting off point, and they're all in colour as well. I managed to persuade the publisher to do them in, to, in full colour, which is quite unusual for academic books. So um, I'm all you know, thumbs up to American University in Cairo Press for being prepared to do that. So I think that's where to, but I've, I've also, I've got an Amazon author page where all my stuff is on there. Um, and I can be Googled. There are, I've got all sorts of bits and pieces of me on, on YouTube, some of it going back a very, very long way. Um, mm. Today's when I had rather more hair than I do today. There's even there's an interview with me, which was done by some some of my some students for a, for their MA project. So, so, so if you want if you want to find more out more about me, there's plenty of me out there on the web. Great. Well, we will post links to your work as well on ancientheroes.net. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I wish I wish we had all day. I have so many questions. Uh, it's been a great uh, sort of entry point, I think, into ancient Egypt for us. So I really appreciate you coming on and hopefully we can talk again uh, some other time. Very happy to do so, yes. All right, Professor Dodson, talk soon. Okay, bye. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.